Welcome to the Adoptee Thoughts Podcast. I am your host, Melissa Guida Richards, an author, adoptee, and mom. Each week, we will delve into the nuances of adoption, as well as tips for how to bring up difficult discussions in your adoptive family. And most importantly, we will not shy away from tough topics. So thanks for joining me today, and let's jump into your weekly dose of Adoptee Thoughts. Can you please introduce yourself? I'm Jenny Hyejin Wells, and I'm the author of Older Sister, Not Necessarily Related, that came out with McClelland and Stewart, Penguin Random House Canada in 2019. Can you please share a little bit about your adoption story? Sure. So I was adopted probably around eight or nine months old from, um, I I recently-ish learned that I was born in Seoul. And I was adopted by a family in Southern Ontario, Canada, which at the time, which, you know, was in the early 1980s, was an incredibly sort of isolating experience. Because I think even more so than adopted folks in the U.S., for instance, we are really isolated and separated in large part because of the geography of Canada, Mm -hmm. an expansive country with such a small population. So I grew up in that small town, um, small-ish town, I guess, um, until I was about 17 years old and I moved to Toronto for school at that time. And, and I chart all of these sort of things in my memoir, but I think hopefully an important difference between my book and some others is that it begins at the point of reunion. So it's not really a memoir that charts, you know, my childhood and then coming of age and then early years of adulthood. It really starts uh, at a point in adulthood with reunion. When did you decide to really dig in and write the memoir of that experience? Right. So, so my reunion happened in 2008 to 2009, and I started writing the book in 2016. And, and the catalyst for writing that book or the prompt for it was a boredom and insomnia. And I was working on a different project. And, and, but part of it, I think was I was on research leave for my day job. And it was the first time that I had had a moment to sit with some of my ideas and some of my experiences in reunion since that had happened. So it quickly came out as poems, which then over the next little while were transformed into a life narrative. Did you find it difficult digging into such an emotional experience? Um, like you started off like a reunion and I just, as a, a reader, it just took me right in because I felt like I was there and I experienced some similar things. So did you have any difficulty writing about such an emotional experience? You know, not really. And maybe part of that is because before I was working on this creative project, my scholarly research was about adoption narratives. So, so a large part of, I think, some of that training was a way to think about those kinds of stories in a very analytic and logical way. So, so it wasn't difficult writing the text, emotionally at least. It was difficult reading the text in the revision stage and it's it's been a unique challenge I think doing publicity for a book like this and and I'm sure you can relate to this as a writer yourself Mm -hmm. that sometimes it's more challenging to be interviewed or to be talking to folks who are completely disconnected to adoption stuff. Sometimes it's more difficult to have those conversations within our own communities also because they know exactly where to like put the pressure, I think. So, so those have been more, I guess, emotionally um, tumultuous or, or volatile. And I mean that not in a negative way, but just very up and down, I think. Than, than the act of writing mm-hmm. itself. Did you find any pressure from the publishing industry to tell your story in a certain way? Yes and no. So I published with you know a mainstream trade press, um, a large publishing house in fact, and I received some pressures to do things 
not that were uncomfortable to me, but things that I hadn't thought of, I guess, that, you know, a large reading audience looks for. And, and when I say that, I don't mean that my editor or agent pressured me to recite things or to, to express things that were uncomfortable, but they needed me to fill in some of the gaps that a general audience or a general reading group wouldn't understand without those pieces. So, so that's where the pressure came in. They've always been incredibly supportive about racial things, about kinship things, about gender and sexuality things. Um, and, and in fact, mm-hmm. in the opposite direction that one might have assumed, incredibly open-minded in those ways. But it was um, my editor who said, you know, you need to fill in the blanks so that your reader stays with you between these particular memories. Yeah, I, um, I found it so refreshing um, that you were able to, to get into those nuances with adoption. And you really portrayed the, um, the angst, I feel, that a lot of adoptees can experience. Um, And it was just refreshing to me um, as a transracial adoptee who has heard the narrative by the mainstream media pressure to be so positive all the time. And I felt it was very real in your book, like reading it and reading the pages, I I was able to relate. It wasn't cookie cutter, um, perfect adoption story. It was what I've experienced, what other adoptees I've talked to experienced. And so that was really nice. And I feel like you got that um, perfectly. Um, so it's awesome talking to you about that. One of the, the most poignant parts that I read that has stuck with me is when you wrote um, about meeting your father and you told him, we cannot speak, we have nothing in reference to uh, the language barrier between you and your mother. And that to me as an international adoptee was just, it was, <laughs> I had to stop, reread that paragraph, and then go back because I was like, man, I, I feel that in my heart. Um, I recently reconnected with my birth mother um, this past March, but every time I've talked to her, it's been through a translator. I've never been able to have a conversation with her. Like I'm sitting down here having a conversation with you. And even though we're like halfway across a different country, we're able to communicate. But what came across so real and so raw in the book is just like our own flesh and blood. Another person out there in the world understands what it means to not be able to communicate with the person that carried you for nine months. And when writing a scene like that, um, and I guess editing and going back over that, what did you find go, going through your head? And why, what were you really trying to, to make sure that you didn't miss by uh, actually writing that down, that experience? You know, I think you're absolutely right when you say we find other ways to communicate with one another. And, and it's true, the very sort of conventional understandings of language and expression that we use um, in such a naturalized way amongst you know people who speak the same language it's not the only way to talk to one another and and I think that I try to express that in different points of the book that that new languages or new modes of communication and care um, reveal themselves uh, out of necessity mostly, right? But I think in that Mm -hmm. particular scene, not only was that, you know, very uh, sort of scenario exactly as it unfolded, as I represented it there, but I think what I really wanted to express in that moment was a feeling of hopelessness and futility and not knowing where to put the anger also because a part of that scene that you're describing is that the translator at the agency refuses to tell my father what I'm saying in that moment and and I'm sure many of us have been in circumstances yes where even if we have you know someone there to facilitate 
the communications that we want to express that they refuse or they're unable to. And we know in translation, of course, it's, it's a um, remediation of what's said in the first place. Um, and so, mm -hmm. so I think that what I wanted to really express in that moment is having the words finally, this eruption of anger that came out of me because I hadn't known where my frustration was all that time up until that point in the reunion, having the words to say it in my language, yeah. articulating that there was no language and then not having it translated to the person that I was sort of um, placing that blame on. Yeah. There's so many layers and I just, I feel like you captured it, it perfectly um, so that I feel like not even, even non-adoptees would be able to feel like the frustration, the confusion, the anger, all of that. And I feel like so many of us, especially transracial adoptees, we struggle with getting other people to understand what it's like. Um, there's so many different nuances and complications um, with being an adoptee and having language to express that and um, seeing that written for the public to, to take in and seeing it received so um, amazingly is reassuring. And as a writer that I feel like writers like you and Nicole Chung are like paving the way for more adoptees to tell our stories, for the media to actually listen and respect um, our, the stories that we have to tell. Yeah, I mean, maybe in this particular um, style, but there were so many brilliant adoptee memoirists and poets um, and fiction writers before us whom, you know, I'm just completely in awe of myself. So um, it's sweet of you to say, but... I'm just a mere <laughs> copy of many before me. <laughs> I, I, I feel like um, there are definitely like, amazing writers out there, but um, publishing is this huge hurdle that uh, I know there's many adoptees who are looking to get into writing. So just like for another adoptee adopted within our generation, it's, it's nice to see. And uh, just hearing about your experience with it. And um, I'm curious to know, how did your adoptive family react when you, you told them that you were going to write a memoir? Well, originally the book was imagined as a novel, actually. And one of the strategies behind that was just my fear of nonfiction and of being out of control of the image that I worked very hard to control in life, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're always yeah. being looked at. So, of course, it's... For someone like me who has a lot of anxiety about that, part of the way that I've dealt with that is, um, you know, very strict curation of a public image. So I was frightened into wanting to publish it as a novel, as fiction. Um, that plan was thwarted, <laughs> um, positively so, I think, through, uh, through the publishing industry. And when I told my parents, I think they were surprised, but since the release of the book, they've been quite supportive, in fact, and I think quite proud. Um, and maybe it's allowed us to have conversations without, again, with a different kind of language, like without having to sit mm. down and have a traditional conversation with one another. It's, it's become sort of a substitute for some discussions that might have been too difficult to have. Definitely. I, I feel that as a nonfiction writer myself, uh, a lot of times it can be difficult to sit down with my, my adoptive parents and talk to them about race and the issues I've had and um, experiences with racism. But um, I will share my essays with my mom and be like, hey, by the way, I have this essay out. And it, it's kind of helped our relationship, I feel, um, just having a less <laughs> um, argumentative way to just express myself in um, an honest way that she can take in um, as she wishes and uh, sit on it before, you know, we react to one another's emotions. Because I feel like with adoptive parents and transracial adoptees, a lot of times we, we can 
make the situation volatile if one of us gets hurt and when something's coming out we're not explaining it the right way um so having an outlet like writing or um art or something like that um can be kind of a mediator i mean a large part of what i think about is the way a writer imagines their audience and what they need and imagines a generous reader and how to support a generous reader right it's about a relationship yeah and what's I think what's emerged in my relationship with my Canadian parents is that thinking carefully about how one might communicate to a reader has actually clarified some of those conversations for us and, and removed some of the you know, superfluous um, emotional things that in the past have interfered yeah with those things so just the writerly act or just thinking like a writer I think has genuinely helped us a lot yeah definitely and I remember in the book that you you wrote that around seven is when you first became um a Korean girl you wrote um in the eyes of those around you um can you share a little bit more about that and whether you've discussed race with your family before um, that experience? Sure. Um, that scene that you're talking about, I'm, I'm discussing, I think, how my schoolmates and teachers, it seems as though their world was open to the possibility that Asianness wasn't this monolithic Thing, and that there were the specificities of different races and ethnicities within, you know, mm -hmm. Asian communities. And it, it specifically happened when I was around seven because that's when the Olympics were held in Seoul. And so there was this sudden interest and this sudden sort of public conversation about the particularities of Korea versus other um, cultures and races within Asia. Um, and so, so that became sort of this moment that I became a specific kind of Asian in the eyes mm. of many people. So, so that's why it was at that particular moment in my life. Now, I didn't talk too much about race with my family when I was growing up. Um, and I think that they probably tried to in different ways, but you know, how when we're young and even when we're not young, we sort of put out feelers and testers to see what are comfortable topics for people. And young people are incredibly intuitive mm -hmm. about what feels like a comfortable conversation. And so I imagine I put out feelers of some kind when I was young and didn't necessarily feel that um, everyone was equally able to have those discussions mm -hmm. at the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I totally understand that. Did, do you feel like now as an adult and post-reunion, you are able to be a little more open with discussing this with your adopted family? In some ways, yes. Um, when it comes to personal experiences, yes. I also teach critical race studies at the university. And I think that there's still a reluctance to, um, to see that as a field that one can be, um, you know, scholarly trained in or to have actual, I don't want to say expertise, that sounds so corny, but you know what I mean? like <laughs> yeah. some, something to say, some yeah. kind of like knowledge or, or some thoughtfulness about it. And, and I feel it's not just with my family. I just feel that many people, at least in Canada, feel that um, that isn't necessarily something that requires like a specialized knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so because everyone has an opinion about it, whether they're asked or not, I guess. Yeah. And so I think on broader racial issues, there's still some conflict or there's a trepidation on my part because I'm not sure how some of the things that are important to me will register with um, my family. But my parents are, my family in general is much more um, 
open to having conversations about transracial and transnational adoption, which I guess is it's a good first step. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. Would you say that the, the thought process uh, in Canada is more of a colorblind uh, mentality, or do you think that's more of an American type of view? Hmm. Um, I'm not sure. And, and I, I guess I'm also not sure how to set up um, like kind of a dichotomy about these things because we're so entwined in our political histories and presence and futures of yeah. place. Um, there are striking differences, I think. Um, however, um, I'm not sure. I, I know a lot of people who have this kind of post-racial or um, refusal to acknowledge racial privileges approach. Um, but the conversations in Canada, I think, tend to be, uh, in an important way, quite centered on anti-Indigenous racism and settler colonialism in ways that I think, um, at least my experiences when I, when I go to race studies conferences, et cetera, in the U.S., um, it's not as centered, mm -hmm. I guess. I mean, increasingly so in the past, like, five, ten years, I think. And, and I, I say that not to erase the important, um, valuable, and uh, profoundly empowered work by Indigenous activists and scholars and artists, um, you know, across Turtle Island. But I think that conversations about race are uh, importantly but complicatedly uh, entangled with conversations about settler colonialism in Canada. So it's, it's slightly different that way. But. Definitely. I've, I've talked to a few adoptees all over the country now in like Australia. I talked to one in Italy. And it's interesting to me to see the differences in um, their upbringing. But at the end of the day, I feel like a lot of us struggle with identity. And mm -hmm. I was able to, to see some of that in your writing. And it's, like I said, it was, it's refreshing. I mean, I should also mention, I have a book that came out today that's called Adoption of Multiculturalism. I'm like, I'm the worst self-promoter, I guess, when it comes to academic things. Um, but it is specifically uh -huh. about dehomogenizing the adoptive land. And so one of the things that we wanted to do, it's co-edited with um, Tobias Hubenet and Indigo Willing. One of the things we wanted to do in that collection was to think about how non-US states think about uh, transnational and transracial adoption um, in relation to these notions of multiculturalism, um, et cetera. So I shouldn't uh, diminish that work or forget about that work, <laughs> I guess, uh, because I think it is. You, you are right. It's quite important to, uh, to, to discuss the similarities, but also, I think, to, to reveal the differences in our adoptive lands, yes. especially outside of the U.S. Like, no shade, but like mm -hmm. everyone talks about the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, like we've been one of the largest um, countries to uh, adopt uh, internationally into the country. And I feel like the U.S. kind of can take over the discussion on a lot of, a lot of times, but um, that's why I, I really enjoy talking to oh, adoptees from other countries to, to get like your experience because it's, it's so important to, to see. And um, just to realize that America adoptees in America aren't the only ones kind of struggling with yeah. some of these things. And in other countries, there's similar issues with not discussing race and um, just, I feel like adoptive parents in general need more education. So books like yours, your memoir, and now um, educational texts, I feel like they're all beneficial um, to just bring adoptive parents more yeah. knowledge on this subject because back in even the 90s when I was adopted, my parents really didn't have the internet at their fingertips to just type in like 
how to, uh, what do I need to know? Um, so right. having these things available are, are very beneficial to our community in general yeah. and not just for that. No, you're right. The internet really is um, a game changer, I think, for a lot of reasons, not just in terms of um, cultural educations, as you bring up, but also for our reunions, for our connection to other mm. people within, you know, adoptee communities, et cetera. It, it is such a different world from when, um, well, definitely from when I was small. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, you know, as, as we've, as in hearing you talk about these things, I'm reminded, I guess, one of the clear differences between Canadian transnational or transracial adoption experience and in the U.S. Um, one of the differences that seems clearer to me is that the majority of transnational adoptees that I know are language minorities in the country and that they were adopted in Quebec um, and sometimes in smaller towns in Quebec so they don't speak any English in fact but are living in a supposedly so-called bilingual nation that is uh, predominantly Anglophone. So I, I think that that's a very unique thing in Canada mm -hmm. um, in contrast to the U.S., I guess. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, most of us, uh, we, we are taught English, and even um, those of us who are, are adopted at a later age, from my experience, um, are really pressured to learn English mm -hmm. and take that on. Um, not a lot of adoptive families, I feel, uh, try to integrate birth language mm -hmm. into the families. And even adoption agencies, I've learned that a lot of times they'll, they'll even say not to confuse your adopted child because they're worried adopted parents won't pronounce things correctly. And just it's just very nuanced. <laughs> I mean, that seems to be an ironic admission that there's confusion that's going to happen in these situations mm -hmm. then if there are um, instructions set up to diminish you know identity crisis things it's in and of itself admitting that the system yes. is one that's going to create identity um yes yes difficulties let's just say. <laughs> And I got to the point in your book, I was just rereading it uh, before uh, today, where you pretty much called out the adoption agencies. And I was just like, mm. yes. <laughs> <Me>? <laughs> like, yes, like you said what a lot of us are thinking and um, just, I think it really kind of honed in on how in the book, you are your adoption agency is kind of handling the reunion and uh, that whole process, and then just seeing like the pressure to have the the picture perfect reunion that is often illustrated in the media, and then your experience deviating from the cookie cutter thing, and then just telling us almost point blank that the adoption industry is profiting off of trauma basically and they're not ready to kind of announce that to the rest of the world and yet day in and day out international adoption i feel isn't 100% necessary anymore and yet why are these programs continuing and just how you touch lightly upon like some of these thoughts that not only me or even you just like many adoptees i feel like have thoughts like this so did you hesitate at all uh before including that in your memoir <laughs> i mean now i'm wondering if i should have hesitated more than i did <laughs> um i did not um I did a little bit of additional research for another scene in the book where I'm describing um, certain agencies providing sort of like a hostel or a guest house situation for returned adopted people while also still being, you know, an agency at the same time. And so I, I hadn't known about that until I was in the process of writing. And I think that maybe this scene even more than the reunion scene that I think you're talking about, illustrates the paradox and, and the profound sort of cynicism that some folks can have 
about these so-called um, welcoming or like return spaces that are open for us or whatever that I mean I don't know what the equivalent term would be but it reminds me of like greenwashing or these kinds of you know cynical expressions of social care that are done to uh, mitigate ongoing shady behavior <laughs> and so, yes. so I'm not sure what the adoption agency equivalent to greenwashing <laughs> is but I'll leave that to you um, and maybe some of your listeners uh, to come up yeah with um but but that's I think those kinds of scenes reveal um why so so many folks are increasingly becoming dubious I guess mm -hmm. of these comfortable narratives that circulate. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like we're hearing more uh, about problems with international adoptions and like even like ethical issues and some agencies are shut down because of ethical issues. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah. just to kind of um, see a personal experience um, with the pressures that adoption agencies can put on uh, even adoptees um, was just interesting to me uh, because I haven't really had any interaction with my agency <laughs> since I was adopted. Um, and I went through a private investigator to find my, my birth family. So I didn't have to go to them and ask for them to send letters to my birth mom. And I thought that was interesting and also incredibly frustrating. And I can't imagine what that must have been like having to, to go back to the place that placed you <laughs> in a different country um, and kind of ask them, I feel like it's ironic that you have to ask them for almost like a favor and you have to, to hope that they, they do what they say they're doing. And that is an incredibly uh, yeah. difficult situation to be in. And so I'm glad, glad that yeah. you wrote about it. Yeah. I mean, these are the vulnerable, like the vulnerable positions that some of us find ourselves having to place ourselves in. Um, mm -hmm. And when I was discussing earlier in our conversation about this, like controlled, curated self, I mean, yes, of course, we're already poised and primed to know how to do that with these agencies, then also how to sometimes um, navigate them so that we can get what we need from them. Yeah. Um, it's uncomfortable, that's for sure. But I mean, I think it's also important, I think a lot about um, people of, you know, my generation of adoption earlier, even later, and it's done, right? Like the thing has happened. And so one of the things, one of the questions I was trying to answer with my book is, so now what? You know, there's no time machine here. And we all know time machines aren't for people of color anyway. Um, but there's no time <laughs> machine here. Um, there's no going back. So what do we do with this situation that we're in now? And, and I've heard from some adoptive parents who are like, okay, well, I did this thing, but now what? And I think this is an important question that, yeah. um, that we're faced with thinking through carefully now, because the answer isn't, um, like it's impossible to yes. do some of the things or the, the, you know, wishful thinking things that cannot be. So what do we do now with these people that we love in our lives in many mm -hmm. cases? What do we do with these um, identities that we now have and nothing else? How do we move forward? And, and my editor, who's a very brilliant woman, um, said, when, when I said, you know, I'm nervous about how people are going to read this book if adoptive parents are just going to be like hating on me the whole time. And she's like, you know, your book, you need to think of it as a book that's not telling people if it's right or wrong to do something, especially if that thing's already been done, but a book that's asking questions about it and like asking the right questions about how we might think about it. So, so I try to focus on that, that, I mean, we can work towards changing policy, but, but that's the reflection on the careful questioning and critical engagement now, um, as opposed to just 
you know, solely dreaming of what can never be. Yeah, yeah. I think that's so important um, to discuss and just for people to see that there's no necessarily right or wrong path and each time you make a decision, it, it's not like there's another clear answer after that. You kind of have to play catch up and do what's best for you, while also considering all these other moving parts that... Um... I was gonna say, it's like why these reactions when you see on social media when an adopted person's um, expressing their grief for their emotions. And then there are always these reactionary responses like, oh, would you rather be like languishing, you know, in an orphanage or whatever? Yes. Like this is, these, this approach to discussing these issues is completely pointless because, mm-hmm. um, because that train of discussion doesn't actually, you know, alter the ways that we're thinking about these things in the end, because it's just relying on that same dichotomic, um, dichotomous narrative of like one or the other. Right. And so, yeah. yeah. I don't know. And it invalidates people's experiences. Mm -hmm. And just because someone's situation could have been worse, like adoptees, we could have been left in a ditch or (laughs) something like that. It's just like with any other kid, like your parent could have divorced earlier, something could have happened horribly in your life, but that's not the case. And that's not the issue that we're discussing Mm -hmm. right now. And just because it could have been worse doesn't mean our experiences and our life and the struggles that we're going through aren't important. Absolutely. Um, These are conversation enders or attempts to end conversations. And that is like the opposite of what we should be doing. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And like a question that I I get a lot, especially when I bring up um, topics of race and kind of the issues that we can go through. Like um, I just wrote an article on Abby Johnson. um, Mm. And one of the things that I got from a lot of adoptive parents was, well, why are you talking about these issues and you're not offering a solution and you're just like dividing us and like just Mm -hmm. things like that and it's just very interesting to me that pointing out potential flaws in the adoption industry is seen as such a bad thing for not just adoptive families and adoptive parents but to like society at Mm -hmm. large and to me I don't write about these things just to get a reaction and to make people upset I write about these things because the they impacted my life Mm -hmm. and the lives of friends of mine that were also adopted and I feel like as a community in order for us to grow we really have to talk honestly Mm -hmm. about the intricacies of adoption and that doesn't just include the positive stories that includes the flaws in the system and that's another reason why I really enjoy your work Mm -hmm. and I feel like it's important that we have it out there and I'm just curious how the reaction has been from adoptive parents to your memoir hmm um for the most part uh they kind of stay in their lane with me (laughs) Not not many adoptive parents have uh, have spoken to me directly. Um, some prospective adoptive parents have tried to reach out to me, which is um, you know discomforting. I think yeah. um, more it's it's more adoptive people who are reaching out to me, although. There is, I've talked about it a little bit in other venues. There is this one move that adoptive parents do where they, um, they spring like photos of their adopted kin, um, upon me, either in my inbox or like at a, you know, event or whatever, which, which renders me speechless because I don't know what to do with those acts. And, and I think, I feel that when people's uh, bodies are weaponized in that way, um, I do take that as an act mm-hmm. of aggression. I feel like that falls in vain with like people saying, well, my, my adopted cousin is happy. And like, I feel like it's almost a competition 
almost that they they try to force us into adoptive parents and absolutely and and i'm i don't feel that those people's narratives or images or whatever are being used consensually um in those ways so that also troubles Mm -hmm. me and i think what's another important point is that a lot of adoptees we're kind of taking ownership of our stories so to to have other people Mm -hmm. share another adoptee story that doesn't belong to them it like you said it it can feel like an act of aggression and it's it yeah it's problematic but but you're hitting on the exact word that's the problem there and that's like belong (laughs) to them because in some cases like people do have Mm -hmm. it twisted and think that um a human being can belong to them and um (laughs) so so many issues with that but we could talk all day about that right (laughs) that's right yeah (laughs) (laughs) well i really enjoyed our talk Um, before we go um i know that you did prepare a reading so i would love for you to share that with us before we end end the conversation (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And thank you to your audience, um, your listeners. This has been a real treat. I'm oh, really excited of course, to meet is... you um, and them. <laughs> this has been great. <laughs> okay, um, so I've prepared two short sections. One of the sections um, appears as a second person address or a direct address to my older sister. And so throughout, throughout the memoir, Um, I use a second person voice at various times, often to talk about very emotionally weighted things or very politically weighted things. And and it's interesting that we talked a little bit about expressions of anger and being um, direct and extra and whatever. Um, I tend to do that mostly in these confessions to a sister. And and that was a writing strategy to... um, to couch some of those difficult discussions about transnational and transracial adoption in the confessional mm-hmm. uh, mode. So, so here's one that comes early on in the text. And it's sort of, it's, it's a conversation, a one-sided conversation with my older sister, sort of introducing the idea of transnational adoption to her. Okay, so my older okay. Korean sister, of course. All right, on me, it resonates a lot these days that we who were scraped up from the floor of orphanages and churches and hospitals and sent alone to new families and cultures and lands are members of a lost generation. We're a blip on the history of our country, a nation that seems millennia older than the countries to which we were sent. Our congregation meets in adoptee guest houses that are meant to keep us safe, to give us hope even when the peoples and cultures we want to dissolve into won't fully have us after all. When this ends, and it will end, I promise you, a memorial will be built and maybe pages will be added to grade school textbooks and will continue to vanish, to die one by one, many of us with the words, why me, on our lips. I've heard official apologies again and again, statements of remorse or shame that it's still ongoing. But there's no true accountability if they keep adding to our numbers while while they keep sending us so far away. They're embarrassed this no longer necessary relief program still exists. But on me, it's just too good to give up. Do you know how much people are still willing to pay? Um, and then the other section that I prepared, oh, let me find it. It's, it's very short and it's, so, so the memoir is written in three sections. The first section is a reunion. The second section swings back in time and um, sort of discusses moments in childhood up to that point of reunion. And then the third section is about um, the second reunion, which is the mending of some emotional turmoil that happens with my Korean family. And, and the entire book is written in short, nonlinear vignettes. So, so the second passage that I wanted to read comes from that second section. 
um, that's about childhood. And this is the first time I've read this passage aloud. I thought that maybe it would be appropriate for this space. Okay. I came to Canada with five months left in my passport, one toy in my hand and one word in my mouth. They must have misheard me because they tell me now that I was crying on mama, unable or unwilling to let me believe I had something that wasn't vaguely recognizable to a Western listener. But I know I was calling it Omma, that early on I was a Korean girl. They laughed at the noise I made because to them it meant nothing, but to me it was all there ever was. And of course Omma means like mommy. Thank you so much for sharing that with me. And it's not funny, but like, I really enjoy how that's the passage, the first one, because that was the one I was referring to when we were talking. Oh. I was like, yes, that awesome. one. Um, so I'm super excited for listeners to get to, to hear that. Um, thank, thank you again for taking the time to speak I'm with so me. glad that you joined me today. And if you would like to hear more from Adoptee Thoughts, make sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you'd like to learn more about me, you can check out my website, adopteethoughts.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.